So Helene, thank you so much for joining us for Bookable Space. It's absolutely my pleasure. And so I just thought we'd just jump right in. Partially, I shall let you know that I'm quite nosy and I love the chance to talk to writers about their books. There's something about the characters, the place. I just love that insider information that we don't always get access to. The format, as you know, it'll ideally be three questions. I have warned you, though, that I'm becoming enamored with conjunctions. And so some of the questions you might be like, wow, is that grammatically correct? I will tell you that if you're wondering, it's probably not. (laughs) But so my first question is going to be, where did the idea for what I hid from you come from? What I heard from you is, is about a dentist uh, who lives pretty much in my street and she becomes addicted to Valium and that lands her in, the, in a bit of a pickle with the local drug dealers. And the idea came from actually wondering, it's so many people hate the dentist, you know, and they don't like going to the dentist and they're, they're very anxious at the dentist. And I thought, well, how does the dentist feel? You know, are they ever anxious? Do they feel you know, do they feel sad that people don't like them? And then this this question of, you know, do they get anxious, trigger this idea of an anxious dentist. And, and in the book, it starts with her learning her fate after the death of the patient in her chair. You, I'll do the reading so you'll find out what that is. But it, it was that idea. And, and I know dentists and my sister-in-law is a dentist, so that helped. But mostly I was just like, I wonder how the dentists feel about us all hating them. <laughs> I love that that inspired a book. (laughs) Anything can inspire a book. (laughs) True, but that it inspired a book with a death. I'm not. (laughs) So with that in mind, could we have a reading, please? Absolutely. So I will just start on chapter one, which is usually the best place to start in a book. And the book is in two voices, actually. So you've got Radha and her father, Gunbir. And so the second reading will be him. Your future is in your hands, they'd say at school. Never was this more alive than now. I stood weighing the thin blue and white envelope in my palm. Hmm, light. Was that good? I wouldn't normally open post in between patients. It was hard enough to stick to time. But Pauline, the practice receptionist, had thrust it into my hand with a knowing look the second I exited my surgery. There were letters and there were letters. Unlike handwritten ones to be savored at home, the odd thank you for surprisingly painless treatment, or bills and financial statements to be disregarded until the end of the week, this one demanded my immediate attention. This one I dreaded for months, fueling an anxiety that pushed me to do things I never thought I would. I leaned against the wall, cooling my face against its imperturbable sterility. My fingers trembled as I flipped the envelope over and pulled out the single sheet. Three stacked words filled the top quarter of the page. The font bolded as though their importance needed further underscoring. It didn't. General Dental Council. Three words that put any dentist immediately ill at ease, whether they had done something wrong or not. And I was about to find out if I had, if the old woman's death was my fault. If everything I'd worked for, everything I ever wanted was about to be ripped from me. So much of my identity Ever since I donned my brother's oversized school shirt and poked at my teddy bear's mouth with Kirby grips, ever since I proudly sported a home-crafted name tag, should anyone be in any doubt that I was Radha, the dentist. My breathing constricted. My eyes flashed down past my name, past the reminder of what the case was about, as if I'd forget, and straight to the last sentence. The council has determined that your fitness to practice has not 
been impaired. I sank into a squat, the cotton folds of my stiff uniform digging into the back of my knees. I dropped my head into my lap. I'd been cleared. Tears pulled in my eyes as a huge sob escaped my lips. It was over. A soft cough made me look up. Pauline pointed at the watch and winced. Rada, I'm sorry, but are you all right? I nodded, sniffed, and heaved myself up. I'm fine. I'll be right there. As I strode back to my surgery, my husband Arjun stepped out of his. Whoa, be careful, babe, he said, grabbing me by the elbow to prevent a collision. He flashed his perfect teeth. Teeth that attracted people from far and wide to get their cosmetic work done at our practice. A smile that made me fall for him all those years ago at uni. He frowned. Was wrong. Not wrong. I shook my head and smiled. The opposite of wrong, the GDC. I waved the letter in front of his eyes. It wasn't my fault. Oh, Rada, that's fantastic. You see, I told you it would all be okay. He held my face and rubbed away remnant tears with his thumbs. His warm touch soothed my nerves like a soft blanket. Never a doubt in my mind, he said. A strand of hair escaped my plait. He curled it over his finger before gently tucking it behind my ear. Trust you to think it could ever be your fault. The woman had an episode. You big worry wart. He stroked my back then sent me on my way with a pat on the bum. Better hurry. We don't want to lose any patience. I stiffened. A chill ran over me. He grimaced. Sorry. Poor choice of words. It's okay, I heard myself say, but it wasn't. I wasn't. Even though I'd been found not guilty, I knew that throughout this whole ordeal, my innocence had been lost. I hadn't been able to save the woman, my first patient, to die. And with my frantic search for peace, free from her, ubiquitous her, free from the council's intimidation, free from the distressing memories her death resurfaced, I was failing to save myself. Oh, wow. And then I felt so bad because I was going to laugh. <laughs> like, I wanted yeah. to laugh when, when he said that because I was thinking, oh, my gosh, like, that he would even say it. And then I was like, oh, Yvonne, you're an awful person. <laughs> but that's because, you know, he doesn't he didn't he doesn't realize quite how much it's weighed on her mind. And that's kind of a thing throughout the book. He's not a bad guy. He's just mm-hmm. a little bit oblivious. <laughs> but I feel like it's the same. It's the same sort of thing I would have said. And not meaning any harm, and just like, <laughs> just out. and then I'm making it worse. Going, oh my gosh, that's not what I like, do. You know what I mean? So I love that he was, you know, like human. Yes. In that moment, so the book is set in Glasgow, and you said that they like on your street. Yeah, I uh, my first novel in servitude. Uh, I wrote, and it's in Pollock Shields, which is the area of Glasgow that I live in. And I thought when I wrote this one, it's, it was a similar theme in that, you know, sort of a, a well-to-do woman gets embroiled with gangsters. And so I thought, well, I'll set it in Pollock Shields again, and this time it's next door. So there is actually even a reference to the neighbors who, if you've read the first book, you'll know, you'd be like, oh, I know that dog. <laughs> so I like to keep little things in, in the same universe. And even if you've read Stay Mad Sweetheart, there's a character in there that comes back here as well uh, and is actually quite a big part of the plot but it's a completely different book well and what does that make possible like writing about a place that you know well what does that make possible in terms of writing fiction and what you can explore and make up or what stays true what makes it 
easier is is the writing because you can just look out your window in many ways this is you know <laughs> this is the park that I have walked through I don't know how many thousand times in the last eight years what was funny and again and in servitude we had these two sisters that moved from Perth up in Scotland uh, in the middle of Scotland to Glasgow the big scary city and they go and and visit you go and visit the parents as a reader as well my husband's parents live in Perth. So again, I just cheated by saying, okay, this is roughly this street. You change the name a little bit. And then you say, you know, you take a left at the high school and their house is essentially my in-laws house. And, and so it saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of research and it, but it also brings a, a, a very heavy level of authenticity and you can reference some bars and pubs that people will recognize a park that people might recognize. And, it's always a little harrowing when somebody in the neighborhood says, I'm reading your book. And you're like, okay, I better have done this right. <laughs> and in um, what I hid from you, there's a local cafe called Ollie's and you always get the amazing tablet with the, you know, the fudge type stuff uh, with your coffee. And she specifically doesn't have it because, you know, teeth. Um, so these little references, I did get one review saying, I want toffee at Ollie's. I know what that is. It's fabulous. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I wonder how many people go to your book expecting or wanting or hoping not to see themselves in it. Yeah. So as I said, I have quite a few dentist friends and uh, and my sister-in-law is a dentist, but none of them uh, have done this to my knowledge. But I did have um, a group of moms from school and we would occasionally meet at breakfast and three out of the five of them were dentists. And so they would gossip a little bit about the local dentist and, and, and other things. And they introduced me to this, the fact that the GDC, the General Dental Council has a website with all the sort of cases for misbehavior and, and you can look them all up. Mm-hmm. And they would tell me, so it's like, you know, there was a, there was a dentist who'd run a brothel and got caught. And, and there's, you know, a lot of substance abuse, which is a serious issue and, and one that obviously I raised through this book. But yeah, you just get to hear all these stories and and think, oh, I want me some of that. But I've made sure that none of them actually look like her. Although one of my friends is a South Asian dentist, but you know, it's not her. (laughs) Definitely not. I do love the, um, to my knowledge, that if they have done it, I'm not speaking on that. And if they haven't, like, I just, I love that little aside there, like just in case, a little caveat. So could we have another reading, please? Of course. Happy to. Let me just... Try not to make too much noise with the pages. <laughs> I love that book flipping page, that sound though. Oh, <laughs> sound effects. <laughs> right, so um, chapter one obviously continues and, and she does get a panic attack and all that. But this is chapter two, Gunbir. The ochre velvet curtain hung half drawn across the bedroom window, obscuring the already limited winter sun. Gunbir rummaged through his wardrobe to find matching socks. The five he held in his hand were all the same length, but different shades of brown. Gunbir hadn't bought his own socks in decades and wondered whether they'd become as distinct pairs or whether they'd suffered such varied hardships, such widely diverging cycles of wash and wear, that their vibrancy had faded unevenly. Like with people. He chuckled. What had it become? It was the kind of observation only old people made. Either way, he deemed the hues compatible enough and picked two socks at random, throwing a third with a noticeable hole into the corner of the room where it landed on a multicolored mound of fabric. This morning's porridge rolled like a stone in his stomach as he sat on the bed. 
He preferred his wife Mina's apple bread rolls for breakfast, but this was a necessary stodgy concession driven by his doctor-imposed diet. He was looking forward to his next meal, lunch at the clinic, like every day. His belt dug into his middle and the wool of his brown suit tensed across his thighs as he lifted his feet to slip the socks on. Gunbir's temples drew warm and he waited a moment for his breathing to recover. He rubbed his toes along the rug and noticed two of them felt numb. He'd ask his daughter Radha to examine them. He pushed himself up and picked his jacket off the bedside table. He checked the half of him he could see in the full-length mirror, his legs obscured by stacks of boxes. He knotted his tie. It was important to look professional, even in retirement. Gunbir came down the stairs, maintaining his balance with the mahogany banister while navigating the narrow band of carpet that remained jumble-free. At the bottom, he removed a small comb from his chest pocket and ran it over his bushy, graying mustache. Darling, any idea where my glasses are? He shouted. He entered the study and ran his hands over the alpine-like range of clutters tables, side tables, and bookshelves. He found his dark-rimmed specs next to one of his two monitors. Never mind, they're here on my desk, he smiled. Yes, I know. Always the first place you tell me to look. He imagined Mina in the other room, hands on her sturdy hips, shaking her head at her daft husband. He stepped into the hallway, dust dancing in the air as he progressed along the patterned red silk rug towards the kitchen. He opened the fridge and picked a vial of insulin. Can't forget this, can I? He said. Although it wouldn't matter all that much if he did, Rana had convinced him to keep an emergency dose at the clinic. He tucked the medication inside his black leather diabetic kit, which he'd chosen because it resembled the leather on a lawyer's portfolio. Another noble profession. He patted it and tucked the case in his outer pocket. It was the one thing he could always trust himself to find. His keys took another few minutes to locate and then came the tricky part, shoes. He sat on the third step of the stairs and leaned forward. The lip of his overly sturdy shoe was difficult to prise open and he slipped his foot in as gently as he could, letting it be swallowed up by the pink specialist foam. Once he'd safely stowed his other foot, he pulled himself up using the handrail. He looked down at the clunky footwear. These diabetic shoes really spoiled his look. With one hand clasping the handle of the front door, he did a last check of his pockets, keys, wallet, medication, and looked at the clock. I'd better go, dear. Time to keep an eye on things. <laughs> I love that there's like just a, this hint of humor for each of the characters. So even though the, the subject matter is it's, you know heavy and, and things that we need to be thinking about and talking about and the secrets and silences and all those things, there are still elements of humor. And I think that's such a lovely kind of gift to the reader. So thank you for that. No, that's not true. I can't, I, I kind of can't help myself with the humor. And and when I'm reading, uh, writing, and it's particularly tense moments and all that, I sometimes go off and it just becomes funny because it's too tense and I don't want it. So I have to slap myself down. But there are always undercurrents of humor in, in all three of my books. And I think it's perhaps because I think people do make a lot of jokes and and, and people do laugh a lot and it is uh, emblematic of families that you have inside jokes as well. And, and, you know, I just want to reflect that reality. So my final question that I get to ask is what sort of research did you do while creating the characters, the narrative, the story, even their jobs, like all those different things, what sort of research did you do? And what is one interesting bit of information that you found out that did not make its way into the book? 
Oh, now I did all the drugs. <laughs> um, I, I did not do any of the drugs. Um, I was very fortunate in that I put out a little appeal on Twitter and I said, look, I'm writing about somebody who takes diazepam for anxiety. And would anybody like to speak to me about their experiences? And I had two people who who raised their hand and confidentially, obviously, mm. spoke with me, not just about why they took it, what the panic attacks were like and how, how it helped, but also what happens when you don't take it anymore, which obviously is something that RADA tries to do. So that was very interesting in terms of there's not a lot of dentistry in the book, actually. And I think obviously in, in hindsight, I should have thought that maybe writing about a dentist wasn't going to invite a huge readership because <laughs> everybody, the whole question was, you know, why does everybody hate the dentist? Oh, let me make one, uh, my main character one and nobody will buy this book. <laughs> But so there's very little dentistry. There's no gore. Don't worry. And yeah, I mean, my sister-in-law's a dentist and my friend's a dentist. And I just said, okay, what's the, and I have teeth. So I've been to the dentist, (laughs) but you'd be like, okay, what's that thing called that you put in the mouth, you know, that goes, and they would have, they would have words for that. Now, what didn't make it into the book? No, I think I used every little morsel of information that I got. (laughs) I love that. So we're going to learn an awful lot while we're reading the book. Yeah, no. And and then obviously Rada and Gunbir, uh, you know, they're not Dutch names. Uh, the, the characters are of South Asian uh, descent. Gunbir is, in fact, uh, hails from Uganda. He's one of the uh, Ugandan uh, Indians who, who left when Idi Amin kicked everybody out, mm. which which is, is mentioned in the book as well. I thought that was a very interesting part of history. And and she just came to me as a fully formed human, you know, and she came to me as South Asian and I live in a very multicultural part of, of Glasgow, the most multicultural part of Glasgow, in fact, and there are a lot of South Asians. And so it felt very natural mm. for her to be uh, of that ethnicity. And, and because she has, uh, she's under a lot of pressure, you know, she's a sandwich generation working woman. When I spoke to a South Asian friend who, who is called Radha, and she, she did not approve of the, the actions of the Radha in the book, I always have to state that. <laughs> but she said, well, you know, the other reason, the other thing that you could think about adding in is the aunties, you know, the, mm. par- the parental friends who are everywhere. And that would add to the pressure of her feeling seen. And I thought that just really cemented the reason why, you know, I chose for, for this character to be to be of this ethnicity. But I did, as you can hear, I, I spoke to quite a number of people and did research, obviously, for the backstory of, of Gunbir as well. And I also had sensitivity readers afterwards to make sure that I dealt with it uh, sensitively. Oh, that's wonderful. And I guess with all that in mind, could we have our final reading, please? Yes. So this one, I, I normally only do two, so I really have to think long and hard. But um, <laughs> I feel spoiled now. Yeah. I think one of the things that, you know, we just talked about the aunties adding pressure. The other thing that adds pressure is the the moms at school. Mm. You know, you have to go and do that. So in, very early on, she gets a phone call from school that her son Manesh has been suspended, which is completely not normal. You know, he's a good student and there had been a fight. And then 
Then a few days later, they go to the school ball. Radha and her husband Arjun go to the school ball, and uh, and you get just some of those awkward conversations and the little, you know, the little casual racism, <laughs> and which I've observed. You know, again, I'm pouring mm-hmm. into this book things I have seen and 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 observed, and I just wanted to grab this little moment where. She's just had this awkward conversation with other mothers and she escapes to the toilet. And as I said, you know, Manesh was suspended from school for having a fight. Long live polyester, I thought as I sat on the toilet, my scrunched up dress at no risk of creases. I dabbed at my nose with the back of my hand. As I reached to pull at the ragged tip of paper sticking out of a tiny hole in one of those annoying modern dispensers, I heard new voices entering the room. Seemingly mid-sentence. And then she said the boy fell to the ground and blacked out for like a full 10 seconds. Boys will be boys, eh? The other said. The doors to the stalls clanged shut. Well, I think it's a bit more than that. I could never understand people who kept talking in the loo. I fell back as I succeeded in wrenching some paper free. Sounds like a typical case of bad parenting, one of them said. I'm told it might have been Manesh. Heather saw him leaving around lunchtime. As I bunched the paper in my hand, I froze. Really? That's surprising. Then again, what do you expect when you put such pressure on a boy? He's bound to pop. The toilet's flushing mingled with the rush in my ears. My hands shook on my lap. I felt dizzy. The subject changed to lipstick. I exhaled silently, lifted my feet off the ground to go unnoticed. The sound of hair dryers filled the room, then quiet. Nothing but my internal scream as I sensed panic rising. I dared to flush, unlocked my cubicle and walked to the sink. I flipped on the cold water and held my wrists under it. I counted to ten. And again, and backwards. But I struggled to control my breathing. Too fast. My heart banged in my chest as my lungs swelled painfully. I shook the water from my arms, opened my clutch bag. It was still there, wrapped up. Thank God. I swallowed the blue pill tears building in my eyes. This wasn't me. The room swirled. My hair moved in the mirror, but I was sure I hadn't. My face morphed into my mother's, her biting disapproval etched in the thick lines of the frown, her stern voice in my head. Weakness is for other people. As I clung onto the marble with both hands, the face grew pale, her eyes wide open, her lips hung slack, like I found her in the garden. What a fascinating reading. So where can we get what I hid from you? Well, I haven't hidden it. <laughs> you can get it everywhere. Um, so Waterstone stocks, it, it's in stock in some of the stores, uh, whether if you see it on a shelf, please, you know, take a photo, send it to me. Um, but I, I think it's mostly one you have to ask for. And uh, just all book retailers, but also if people would like to have a signed and dedicated copy straight from me, you can go to my website, which is www.haleyandkids.com and order one straight from me makes a nice gift. I love that. And it's always gift giving season. It is. It's always gift giving since my birthday. <laughs> there you go. So what a, what a wonderful gift that listeners can give. They can um, purchase a book, get it dedicated, have it mailed to them and read it and buy one for a friend. There you it's go. like a two for two sale. 
<laughs> well, it's it's uh, I think it's one for nine pounds, two for sixteen. So there's definitely no reason not to. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you so much for joining us for the readings, for giving us insight. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. It was lovely to meet you, Yvonne. Thank you so much for having me on.